Well, welcome again to church this morning. It's so good to see you all. We're going to be in Esther chapters 2 and 3 this morning. Uh, Esther is about a third of the way through your Bible in the Old Testament. You can be turning there. If you need a Bible, there's a handful in the lobby. You can grab one. You can take it home if you'd like, or you can look it up on your phone if you would like. Before I dig in, I want to say a big thank you to Austin Groves, even though he's not here this morning, uh, who got a call from me on Friday of last week saying I was sick and I needed him to preach, and he did a wonderful job. I went back and listened to his sermon, so big thanks to Austin. Uh, he, he took us, he gave us a one-off. He, he didn't keep us going in Esther because he had less than 48 hours to prepare, and so we're going to pick up where we left off two weeks ago in the book of Esther, and a quick recap uh, if you weren't here, if you just need a little refresher on Esther chapter 1, basically there's a king. He's the, the most powerful man in the world at the time. He throws a big party. He gets really drunk. He makes a foolish and repulsive request of his queen. She says no, so he throws her out of the palace. And that's basically all just really important background for the start of the story proper, which begins in Esther chapter 2. Now, I'm going to read two chapters of scripture this morning, and it's going to take several minutes, um, but we value God's word. And by the way, if you're, if you're new, um, if you've been coming for a few weeks, you may have picked up that, that we kind of like mumble something after I read the scripture, and just to invite you to join us in that as a way of showing gratitude to God for his word. After I read the scripture, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and you will respond by saying, thanks be to God. Um, whatever you need to do before these two chapters to like adjust your posture physically or mentally, if you need to close your eyes and imagine you're there, I'm going to read it in my best storytelling voice, so hopefully we can stay engaged for a few minutes as we read. Sometime later, when King Ahasuerus' rage had cooled down, he remembered Vashti, what she had done and what was decided against her. The king's personal attendant suggested, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in each province of his kingdom so that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem at the fortress of Susa. Put them under the supervision of Hege, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, and give them the required beauty treatments. Then the young woman who pleases the king will become queen instead of Vashti. This suggestion pleased the king, and he did accordingly. In the fortress of Susa, there was a Jewish man named Mordecai, son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Kish had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the other captives when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took King Jeconiah of Judah into exile. Mordecai was the legal guardian of his cousin Hadassah, that is, Esther, because she had no father or mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was extremely good-looking. When her father and mother died, Mordecai had adopted her as his own daughter. When the king's command and edict became public knowledge, and when many young women were gathered at the fortress of Susa under Hege's supervision, Esther was taken to the palace into the supervision of Hege, keeper of the women. The young woman pleased him and gained his favor, so that he accelerated the process of the beauty treatments and the special diet that she received. He assigned seven hand-picked female servants to her from the palace and transferred her and her servants to the harem's best quarters. Esther did not reveal her ethnicity or her family background because Mordecai had ordered her not to make them known. Every day, Mordecai took a walk in front of the harem's courtyard to learn how Esther was doing and to see what was happening to her. During the year before each young woman's turn to go to the king Ahasuerus, the harem regulation required her to receive beauty treatments with oil of myrrh for six months and then with perfumes and cosmetics for another six months. When the young woman would go to the king, she was given whatever she requested to take with her from the harem to the palace. 
She would go in the evening, and in the morning she would return to a second harem under the supervision of the king's eunuch Shashgaz, keeper of the concubines. She never went to the king again, unless he desired her and summoned her by name. Esther was the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had adopted her as his own daughter. When her turn came to go to the king, she didn't ask for anything except what Hege, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, suggested. Esther gained favor in the eyes of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Ahasuerus in the palace in the tenth month, the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women. She won more favor and approval from him than did any of the other virgins, and he placed the royal crown on her head and made her queen in the place of Vashti. The king held a great banquet for all his officials and staff. It was Esther's banquet. He freed his provinces from tax payments and gave gifts worthy of the king's bounty. When the virgins were gathered a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther still did not reveal her family background or her ethnicity as Mordecai had directed. She obeyed Mordecai's orders, as she always had while he raised her. During those days while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance, became infuriated and planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. When Mordecai learned of the plot, he reported it to Queen Esther, and she told the king on Mordecai's behalf. When the report was investigated and verified, both men were hanged on the gallows. This event was recorded in the historical record in the king's presence. Chapter 3, still with me? After all this took place, King Ahasuerus honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. He promoted him in rank and gave him a higher position than all the other officials. The entire royal staff at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done for him. But Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. The members of the royal staff at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? And when they had warned him day after day and he still wouldn't listen to them, they told Haman in order to see if Mordecai's actions would be tolerated since he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying homage, he was filled with rage. And when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, it seemed repugnant to Haman to do away with Mordecai alone. He planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout Ahasuerus' kingdom. In the first month, the month of Nisan, the king Ahasuerus, in King Ahasuerus' twelfth year, the poor, that is the lot, was cast before Haman for each day in each month, and it fell on the twelfth month, the month Adar. Then Haman informed King Ahasuerus, There is one ethnic group scattered throughout the peoples in every province of your kingdom, keeping themselves separate. Their laws are different from everyone else's, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If the king approves, let an order be drawn up authorizing their destruction, and I will pay 375 tons of silver to the officials for deposit in the royal treasury. The king removed his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadath of the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Then the king told Haman, the money and people are given to you to do with as you see fit. The royal scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and the order was written exactly as Haman commanded. It was intended for the royal satraps, the governors of each of the provinces, and the officials of each ethnic group, and written for each province in its own script, and to each ethnic group in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the royal signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to each of the, of the royal provinces, telling the officials to destroy, kill, and annihilate 
all the Jewish people, young and old, women and children, and plunder their possessions on a single day, the 13th day of Adar, the 12th month. A copy of the text, issued as law throughout every province, was distributed to all the peoples so that they might get ready for that day. The couriers left, spurred on by royal command, and the law was issued in the fortress of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink while the city of Susa was in confusion. This is the word of the Lord. I want you to imagine that you, at one point in your life, experienced a a diagnosis of what doctors believe was a, a terminal illness. And they treated and treated and did the best that they could, but as time went on, they told you this isn't looking good. Uh, we don't expect you to have much longer to live. You begin to pray. You pray with your friends, your community, your church, and all of a sudden, things turn around. This aggressive form of treatment starts to work. It starts to take. You start to get better and better until eventually you're clear of the sickness. And every year goes by, and you go back for your checkup year after year after year, and every year you get the good news that you're still in the clear. And so on the 10th year, to celebrate the anniversary, 10 years of health, you decide to throw a party. Friends and family come in town to visit you. And the night before the 10th anniversary party, they're starting to, to trickle into town. They're hanging out at your house. You're, you're having some desserts some drinks and, and catching up with one another. And while you're there, you get a phone call. And you look down, and it's your doctor. And, and you pick up, thinking maybe she's going to come to the party, or maybe she just wants to congratulate me on 10 years. When she hears that there are people in the background... She encourages you to step out of the room to a quiet place where she tells you, regretfully, that the scans were misread and that at the 10th year appointment, it turns out the sickness is back and it looks as bad as ever. How you might feel is not dissimilar to how the Jewish people scattered throughout the Persian Empire would have felt at the end of chapter 3. There's some important dates here included in chapters 2 and 3, one of them is that this news goes out throughout the kingdom to all the people that the Jews are going to be destroyed, and it goes out on the 13th day of the first month, which was the night before the most important day on the Jewish calendar, the day of Passover. If you know anything about the Old Testament, you probably know that the Passover is the most important event in the Old Testament. It's the time when Jewish people celebrate God's great deliverance of them from slavery in Egypt. They're in slavery for 400 years. They're oppressed by a harsh and ruthless Pharaoh, and God shows up and delivers them at the last moment in the most unexpected and miraculous way. And this was such a a formative event, the salvation event in the Old Testament, that it was to become the most important day in the Jewish calendar, and every year friends and family would gather to celebrate Passover together. And so as friends and family scattered throughout the Persian Empire are getting together to begin preparations for Passover, they get this news. This is what we would call bad news. Uh, And that's actually the first point of this sermon. Three points this morning's sermon. Bad news, good news, and very good news should be easy for you to keep up with. This would have raised the question for the Jewish community in the empire. God delivered us once. That's what we're gathered here to celebrate at Passover. God has delivered us once. Will he do it again? Today's passage introduces new characters, the main characters of the story, Esther, Mordecai, and Haman. There's there's two pretty clear separate events in these two chapters. We're going to start with the second and work our way backwards. So we're going to start with Haman and Mordecai. Mordecai, chapter 2, verse 5, 
tells us, is a Jewish man. He's of the tribe of Benjamin, the son of Jair, Shimei, and Kish. He's the guardian of his cousin Esther. And there's some details in the text that indicate to us that, that Mordecai is a really good and just man. For example, the Old Testament is filled with things that tell us that God has special compassion and value for two groups of people, for widows and for orphans. And so for Mordecai to be the kind of man who would take in his orphaned cousin Esther and raise her at his own expense, at the cost of his own well-being, tells us that he is a man after God's heart. He values the things and the people that God values. Not only that, the, the passage tells us that he spent lots of time at the king's gate. This is an indication that he was some sort of official in the kingdom, perhaps a judge or an accountant of some sort. And we get the indication that he does that well, and he's upright, and he serves the king. For example, discovering this assassination plot and reporting it to the king through Esther. So Mordecai is a good man. Haman is the complete opposite of Mordecai in every way. He's rich and powerful. He's cruel. He's scheming and conniving. He's self-centered. He's hot-tempered and overreactive, just like we saw the king was in chapter one. But he's even worse than the king. The king is just a, a drunken buffoon who's easily manipulated. Haman is a snake. He's wicked. And he acts out on that wickedness. And the text also tells us a very important detail that he is an Agagite. Now, before we do a little Old Testament history, a little American history, there is a, um, a famous family feud in American history that is, is so popular that we all know the names of the two families who feuded, the Hatfields and McCoys. Uh, in the 1800s, on the border of Kentucky and West Virginia, there were two families who got into it over something. Historians are not really sure what it was about. Uh, some think it was about a stolen pig. Some think it was about a jilted lover. Some think it was about Civil War sentiments. But regardless, it lasted for more than 30 years, resulted in 25 deaths, and at the end, nine imprisonments. Uh, I will note that all of the imprisonments were on the Hatfield side. And I note that because that's the West Virginia side. My family is from Pikeville, Kentucky, which is where the McCoys are from. <laughs> 30 years is a long time for a family feud, but it's nothing compared to the family feud that actually is picked up on in this story in Esther. By noting that Haman is an Agagite, the author is tipping us off to some Old Testament history. He, Haman, was a descendant of a man named Agag, which means he was also an Amalekite. Now, we're first introduced to the Amalekites in Exodus chapter 17, right after the Passover, right after God has freed his people and these newly freed ex-slaves are wandering through the wilderness. They're approached and ambushed and attacked by another people group called the Amalekites. And the Amalekites acted so wickedly to the Israelites that God said, I am going to make them basically my perpetual enemy. They're an enemy of God and an enemy of God's people. And that continues to play out throughout the Old Testament. We get to 1 Samuel chapter 15, and now the Jewish people are living in their land. They have a king, King Saul, and they're battling with, guess who, the Amalekites. And in particular, the Amalekites at the time are ruled by a king named King Agag. And the people are so wicked, so evil, that in this battle, God basically says, you can't afford to spare them. Like, you, you have to destroy them. And so King Saul, thinking he knows better than God, decides instead to take King Agag hostage, but to keep him alive. Now, all of this is just background. When Haman is identified as an Agagite, Jewish readers of the Old Testament would have known 
this is, this is a family feud dating back centuries because not only is Haman an Agagite and an Amalekite, but Mordecai, obviously a Jew, but also the text indicates based on his lineage that he's a descendant of King Saul. So the, the fight between Saul and Agag is now picking up right where it left off with Mordecai refusing to show respect to Haman. And Haman, just like the king in chapter one, overreacts when he finds out that Mordecai is a Jew he decides, I can't just like fire this guy from his job. I can't just put him in prison, and I can't even just kill him. The only thing that will satisfy Haman's injured pride is complete genocide of all the Jewish people living in the empire. Now, you might read the story, and you might think, knowing what kind of guy Haman was, maybe Mordecai should have just bowed down. Like, maybe he should have just swallowed his pride, right, and gotten over it. Well, two, two things to consider. One, you never blame the victim for the overreaction of an oppressor, right? Even, I mean, worst case scenario, he should get thrown in prison, right? And, and then maybe, you know, whatever. But Haman overreacts so grossly, he decides, I'm going to wipe out his entire people. That's not Mordecai's fault. But second, we shouldn't assume that Mordecai was just rigidly unwilling to compromise, the text goes above and beyond to make the point that Esther submitted in everything that Mordecai told her to do, right? And Esther is in the palace. In order to survive, she is having to make serious compromises <clears throat> with the Jewish law, law, excuse me, the Jewish law and the Jewish way of life. So obviously Mordecai was willing to compromise where necessary, but for whatever reason, he deemed it not worth compromising to bow down to Haman. It could have been because he's aware of the family history and he thinks this man's an enemy of God, I'm not gonna bow to him. It could have been because Haman was just such a jerk that he thought, I'm, I'm not gonna compromise. Uh, many commentators point out in this text that the king should not have needed to issue a decree telling people to bow down to Haman. He's the second most powerful person in the world. They should have just done it. But the fact that the king has to issue this decree might indicate that Haman was a really nasty and unpopular guy, and people didn't want to bow down to him. And so the king has to tell them all to, but Mordecai says, no, I'm not going to compromise. Whatever the reason, it must have been a good one. And in his anger, Haman overreacts. He goes to the king, and he makes a request. Uh, a few points here. Notice Haman's description of the Jews is filled with partial truths. This reminded me of like uh, when I was in high school and I wanted to go to a party that my parents might not have wanted me to go to if they knew all the details. So they might say, you know, who's going to be there? It's like, oh, some, some good people, some people from school, people you know. Where's it going to be? Oh, it's going to be in this neighborhood. Do I know any of the parents? Yeah, you know some of the parents. Okay, I'll see you later. You know, trying to just get them to go along with it as fast as you can. That's what Haman does here. And not only that, he finishes his request by bribing him. I'm going to put 375 tons of silver in the temple treasury. That's quite a bribe. And again, the king goes along with it. His character in this story, he's just so easily manipulated. And Haman casts the poor. He basically rolls the dice to pick a day on which the Jewish people will be annihilated. And on the eve of Passover, the scribes sent out their letters, and the fateful day is set. And the Jews are headed for certain doom. And the king and Haman sit down to drink while the city erupts in confusion. That's the bad news. What's the good news? Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Haman casts the lot, he rolls the dice, but the way that it landed 
was determined by God. And we could say the exact same thing for every single detail in this story. When the bad news, the rise of a powerful enemy of God's people, and the date set for their destruction, when this bad news was unfolding, God had already been working behind the scenes, secretly, quietly, and his plan was already a decade into the unfolding. For example, for God to bring about his plan of deliverance, there needed to be enough time for it to unfold. So literally, the, the poor, the, the lot, the dice, lands on the last month of the year. This is the first month of the year. It gives a full 11 months for the plan to unfold. But more centrally to the narrative, in order for God to be able to deliver his people, there needed to be somebody in the palace who could intercede on their behalf. Enter Esther. It's the seventh year of the king's reign. Remember last week, or two weeks ago rather, we were in the third year of the king's reign. Historians outside of the Bible tell us that between years three and seven, the king went on a campaign to try to add to his kingdom by going to Greece and starting some wars with the Greeks, and he lost those battles. And he came back licking his wounds and sad thinking about his wife, who he had kicked out of the palace, Vashti. And so again, he takes the advice of his counselors and they say, you know, basically, we're going we're gonna to have the, the, the original version of The Bachelor. We're going to throw this elaborate beauty pageant and get all these women in here, and that's what's going to make you happy. And Esther, the younger cousin of Mordecai, is one of the young women taken. Uh, notice a few details here. One, the author notes her beauty. Now, lest you, lest you think that this is reductive and objectifying of her as a person, we already saw last week, two weeks ago, how the book of Esther sort of deconstructs the misogyny of the Persian Empire. If you want to go back and listen to that from two weeks ago, you can. But not only that, we should note that though it is her beauty that gets her into the palace, it will be Esther's wisdom and her courage that will eventually save the day. But nonetheless, God uses even her physical appearance and his sovereign plan to put her in a position to save the people. The process, after being gathered, the women are brought into the palace for an entire year of beauty treatments, during which time we read that Esther gained favor with everybody that she came in contact to. There's this interesting uh, story that kind of repeats itself in the Bible of people that God puts into a position of power to to save and intercede on behalf of his people, people gaining favor. You can read about it with Joseph in the book of Genesis. He gains favor with people in Egypt and becomes Pharaoh's second in command. You can read about it with Daniel in the book named after him. He gains favor and becomes second in command in the book uh, or in the empire of Babylon. And we even read about it with Jesus. The Gospel of Luke tells us that he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. And the same thing happens here with Esther. And on her way to the palace, verse 10, we read she doesn't reveal her ethnicity because Mordecai told her not to. There's this current of anti-Jewish sentiment probably in the empire, so she keeps it a secret. She obeys. The text tells us everything that Mordecai says. Uh, It's interesting, Mordecai and Esther are kind of the inverse of the king and Vashti in chapter 1. The king is an oppressive and unjust male authority over his wife, and so she has to reject his authority. But Mordecai is loving and sacrificial and cares for Esther, and so she gladly and willingly submits to everything that he says. And after their year of beauty treatments... All the young women who were taken into the palace begin going one by one to spend a night with the king. 
This is another example in the story where the author spares us, spares us some of the details, but the implications here are clear, right? They're going in in the evening, they're coming out in the morning. Historians guess that probably hundreds of women were involved in this process, that this nightly routine may have lasted for more than a year. And after their night with the king, they were taken to a place with other concubines, and the vast, vast majority of them never saw him again. Basically, these women were subjected to a life of perpetual widowhood. In a day and age where marriage was normative, the bottomless lust of this king demanded that all of these wives be deprived of husbands and families where they could live a fulfilling life in their day and in their culture. And not only that, but hundreds of men in the kingdom were deprived of potential wives. All of this is to say that the the sanitized version of this may sound like this dreamy process of going into the palace and being given everything you want and treated with with beauty products for a year and then getting to, to be around the king and the things of the king. But no, this was not enjoyable. This was anything but dreamy. Esther suffered on her way to the palace. She was taken against her will subjected to an objectifying process, forced to basically choose between sleeping with the king or surely dying if she refused. But through her suffering, like Joseph, like Daniel, and like Jesus, Esther, verse 15, gained favor in the eyes of everyone. And verse 17, she won more favor and approval from the king than did any of the other women. And Esther becomes queen. The bad news is the Jews have a powerful enemy. He wants them dead, and a date is set for their destruction. The good news is that God's plan for deliverance, by the time the decree goes out about the destruction of the Jews, has been 10 years into the process of unfolding. They've got time, and they've got a person in the palace, and God is going to deliver them again. Here's the very good news. We're not so different than the Jews in the book of Esther. We too have an enemy. Our enemy is not a person like Haman. It's not a neighbor or a family member or a boss or a political figure. Our enemy is spiritual. The Bible calls him Satan or the devil. Christians believe he's a fallen angel who hates God and hates God's people. And because he hates God and people, he wants to do two things. He wants to deprive God of glory and he wants to deprive people of joy. And happiness. And those two things are actually the same because God created the world in such a way that we would be most satisfied and happy when we are glorifying God, and God would be most glorified when we are happy and satisfied in Him. And Satan wants to destroy this plan. But He doesn't just destroy us by going to the King. The King, as it were, is God Himself, so that would never work. Rather, what Satan does is He tempts us and He traps us, He tempts us to sin. The essence of temptation to sin is this. You will be happier and you will be freer if you throw off God's command and live according to your own desires instead. That was the essence of the first temptation in Genesis chapter 3. It's the essence of every temptation. You will be happier and freer if you throw off the shackle of God's commands and live according to your desires. Satan tempts us in this way, but then once we have listened to him, once we have sinned, he traps us in our guilt. There's two ditches that we can fall into in relation to God's command. One is the ditch of license. 
License says you can do whatever you want. Ignore God's law, ignore God's commands, live however you want. The other ditch is legalism. And legalism says I have to earn God's love, I have to earn God's favor by obeying him. Now nobody is a greater proponent of license before you sin than Satan. Satan tells you you'll be happier, you'll be freer if you ignore God's commands, ignore God's law, and live however you want. But nobody is more of a legalist after you sin than Satan. Because as soon as you've given in to temptation, Satan is right there to trap you in your guilt, to tell you God doesn't love you anymore, God's not pleased with you, people aren't pleased with you, your life's ruined, it's over, to heap guilt and shame on you. Here's the problem. The problem for us is that, in part, Satan is right. We are guilty. See, another difference in us and the story in Esther is that the people in Esther were innocent victims of a cruel and unjust leader who oppressed them, who was their enemy. But we are not innocent victims. We go right along with our enemy. He tempts us and traps us because he wants to keep us from the deep soul-level happiness that God created us for, and we just go right along with him. The only reason Satan's temptations work is because there's already sinful desire in our hearts. Satan knows that you have an outsized desire for pleasure, and so the temptation to lust works. Satan knows that you have an outsized desire for money, and so the temptation to, to, to... cut corners on your taxes or to clock in a little early and clock in a little late works. Satan knows that you have an outsized desire for a spouse and children, and so the temptation to envy somebody else's life works. And because of all this, we aren't just innocent victims who have been tricked. We're guilty. And because we're guilty, we deserve judgment. The Bible says that just as the Jews had a fateful day in their future, we have a fateful day in our future. The Bible says that it is appointed for humans to die once, and after this, judgment. And we're guilty. And the consequence of our guilt is death. It's not just physical death, it's spiritual death. Separation from God for eternity. And here's the thing, you and I know in our hearts that this is true. We know deep down, every human knows deep down, that we can't stand before a perfect and holy and innocent God, that we're guilty. And we can do two things with that guilt. We can try to suppress it. We can try to ignore it and pretend that it's a sort of hangover from a a primitive religious culture. Or we can recognize it and try to work on it in our own power, try to be really, really good, really, really ethical and moral and, and selfless. But the problem is that guilt never goes away. We can't, whether we suppress it or work on it, we can't get rid of it. We are guilty before God and we have a fateful day of judgment awaiting us. And the question for us, like the Jews on the eve of Passover, is will God deliver us? Now, I said that point three of the sermon was called very good news and not very bad news. And so here's the answer. Yes, he will deliver us. Indeed, God has been working from eternity past, secretly, quietly, to bring about his plan of deliverance. And that plan of deliverance is a person, and his name is Jesus. You see, we too have an enemy, just like the Jews in Esther. We too have a a fateful day in our future, but we too have a person in the palace, a person who is much greater than Esther, and a person who suffered much more than Esther on his way to the palace. 
Jesus did not merely suffer the, the objective whims, objectifying whims of a, a powerful king. He rather sat under the wrath of God on the cross. He suffered by taking on himself the punishment and the penalty for your sin and for my sin so that we don't have to take it. And he died the death that we deserve to die, but he didn't stay dead. On the third day, he was raised to new life, and from there, he ascended to a throne in heaven at the right hand of his Father. And from there, Jesus now rules and reigns over all things and all people, and anybody, anybody who comes to God through him will see God on that fateful day, not as a judge, but as a Father who loves them and who provided the way for their deliverance. The book of Esther contrasts what St. Augustine called the city of man and the city of God. In the city of man, innocent people are unjustly persecuted by wicked and unjust leaders who enjoy their power and freedom while their citizens suffer. That's what we see in Esther chapter 3, and it's not just the Persian Empire, right? It still happens today. But in the city of God, the guilty are forgiven and set free because the leader, who was himself the only innocent one, gave up his power and gave up his freedom to suffer in our place. Jesus is our way of deliverance. Remember the Passover scene gathered around the table to celebrate and remember God's great deliverance and asking the question, in light of the news that came the night before, will God deliver us again? The answer is, and the very good news is, that he already has. And the question for us now is not, will God provide a way of deliverance, but will we take it? 